Welcome to Socially Distant, Spiritually Close, a podcast dedicated to exploring the biggest spiritual questions of this complex and challenging moment. I'm your host, Rabbi Michael Knopf. So the portion begins uh, in chapter 13 with God instructing Moses to send forth spies or scouts to reconnoiter the land of Canaan. Uh, this is shortly after the Israelites in last week's Torah portion had departed from Sinai uh, uh, on, onward to what really should have been a few days journey uh, to the promised land where they were uh, supposed to, uh, in short order, enter and attempt to conquer it. Uh, and so God tells uh, Moses to send forth scouts or spies to, uh, to look at the land. Doesn't give, uh, God doesn't give Moses more particular instructions than that, but Moses, uh, when he uh, instructs the spies, gives them uh, some more particular commands that may or may not be, uh, uh, have been implied by the divine order. But uh, Moses tells the spies, go up there into the Negev and on into the hill country and see what kind of country it is. Are the people who dwell in it strong or weak, few or many? Is the country in which they dwell good or bad? Are the towns they live in open or fortified? Is the soil rich or poor? Is it wooded or not? And take pains to bring back home some of the fruit of the land. Now it happened to be the season of the first ripe grape. So the scouts go into the land. uh, And then uh, verse 25 continues by saying, uh, at the end of 40 days, they returned from scouting the land. They went straight to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the wilderness of Paran. And they made their report to them and to the whole community as they showed them the fruit of the land. This is what they told them. We came to the land you sent us to. It does indeed flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who inhabit the country are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the Anakites there. Amalekites dwell in the Negev region. Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites inhabit the hill country, and Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. Caleb, one of the spies, hushed the people before Moses and said, Let us by all means go up, and we shall gain possession of it, for surely we shall overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We cannot attack that people, for it is stronger than we. Thus they spread calumnies among the Israelites about the land they had scouted, saying, The country that we traversed and scouted is one that devours its settlers. All the people that we saw in it are men of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The Anakites, the giants, are part of the Nephilim. And we looked like grasshoppers to ourselves. And so we must have looked to them. And chapter 14 continues, the whole community broke out into loud cries and the people wept that night. All the Israelites railed against Moses and Aaron. If only we had died in the land of Egypt, the whole community shouted at them, or if only we might die in this wilderness. Why is the infinite taking us to that land to fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be carried off. It would be better for us to go back to Egypt. And they said to one another, let us head back for Egypt. The story continues with God vowing to wipe out the Israelites, Moses interceding and pleading on their behalf. 
and God ultimately coming to the conclusion, uh, as uh, we read a, a little bit later in chapter 14, in this very wilderness shall your carcasses drop. Of all of you who are recorded in your various lists from the age of 20 years up, you who have muttered against me, not one shall enter the land in which I swore to settle you, save Caleb, son of Yephuneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. Your children, who you said would be carried off, these will I allow to enter. They shall know the land that you have rejected, but your carcasses shall drop in this wilderness while your children roam the wilderness for 40 years, suffering for your faithlessness until the last of your carcasses is down in the wilderness. You shall bear your punishment for 40 years, corresponding to the number of days, 40 years, that you scouted the land, a year for each day. Thus you shall know what it means to thwart me. This is a powerful and dramatic Torah portion. Uh, and to help us unpack it and to help us think through it, we have a very special guest with us this morning, uh, our friend uh, and leading young member of our congregation, Claudia Sachs, is with us. Claudia, are you there? I am. Thank you, Rabbi. So good to have you. Um, so first, Claudia, before we get into the, uh, the, the meat and potatoes of this Torah portion, tell us how are you and how is your family? I'm doing very well, thank you. Um, it's good that summer has started and school is technically over, though it never truly existed um, for the spring. Um, but I'm glad to be home and with all of you today. Great. What's your summer looking like? Um, I have lined up an internship with Richmond Public Schools, and I will still be teaching piano lessons. But other than that, it is not what I had imagined in January. Sure, for for all of us, I think that we can uh, that, that we can say that. Um, but uh, but but really grateful that you're here, and, and glad that you're and you and your family are doing well. So let's let's jump into this Torah portion, shall we? Um, first, let's, let's just go generally. You know, when you read this story, um, what, what comes to mind? What are your impressions? What are your, what are your like, initial thoughts or takeaways from it? I'm very interested in that last part where you were saying that the older generation was not able to see the promised land that they had worked so hard to get to. Um, and the value, there's so much value in taking risks, even if it's at the sacrifice of one's life or livelihood or um, comfort, comforts in life. Um, and it's, it's a story of resilience and triumph and still a constant struggle for redemption. Yeah, um, so I'm feeling a lot of that. Let's let's talk about um, let's pull a thread there that, that you brought up about um, about taking risks, right? So that you know the the story is that the um, the, the ten, you know twelve spies go in, uh, they come back. Ten of them say that um, that that the land is good, uh, but the foes there uh, that we would have to uh, uh, dislodge from the land are are too formidable. We we can't go and do it or maybe you know like my friend uh, uh my college roommate seth uh, 
uh, was wont to say, he said, can't means won't, right? Like, so they, they say we, we can't, but what they really mean is, is we won't because we're, we're afraid of what might happen to us if we do go in. Our, our read of the terrain, our read of the inhabitants is that, that we don't stand a chance against them. Um, Caleb and Joshua, on the other hand, uh, see the same set of facts. Note that you know they, they they offer no disagreement about the uh, the formidable nature of the inhabitants of the land. They 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 don't say no, you're wrong. They weren't giants. No, you're wrong. They don't have strong fortified cities. No, you're wrong. It's not a land that devours their its inhabitants. But rather, they say all of those facts may be true, but nevertheless, we should go in and do it anyway. So. I mean, that's, that's really, really striking. Some might say, you know, some, some of us might say, we look at the 10 spies and say, like, that's prudent. You know, like, don't go into a situation where, you, where, where you're likely to, uh, to, to lose. So um, how, do you, how, uh, how, how do you think about, uh, in your life, um, taking risks in order to do the right thing, right? How do, how do you confront the... The, the, the legitimate and real fears of what might happen to you by taking a course of action that you, that you think or believe to be right, uh, but nevertheless is, is dangerous or risky. Yeah, I think a really interesting insight in that story is that it has to do with mindset, is that two people can look at the exact same set of facts and the exact same situation, and one person says it's impossible or this is just the way things are and this is the way things should be. And the next person can come along and look at the same thing and say, this is our chance to make a change and conquer this great mountain. Um, the greatest connection I see in this current Black Lives Matter movement is that many people recognize the risks of um, coronavirus during these protests. Um, but they feel that the disease of racism is just as dangerous or just as deadly. Um, and I think there is an incredible value in taking risks to do what's right. Um, but it also needs to be done with some clarity and with some uh, foresight so that when taking that risk, the person can be somewhat safe and reasonable. So that may mean in this case, um, like wearing a mask or trying to stay, trying to stay distance from people. Um, but I think the real message from these marches and protests that many of are happening just a few blocks from where I am now is that it's very, it's, it's important to assess the risks and recognize that they are real and dangerous and to be able to make reasonable accommodations to make sure that your voice is heard and that the change that you see as possible, even if others say it's impossible or too, too institutionalized or dangerous, um, that you're able to take the precautions to make sure that you are able to be on the forefront of that change. So um, that, that's that's so powerful. I, I'm wondering, okay, because you, uh, I know, and, and many of us here know, um, have been, you know, deeply involved in various 
forms of activism in, in your young life. Uh, and, you know, I'm thinking in particular about uh, your, uh, your participation in the youth climate strike, uh, in uh, you know, the March for Our Lives uh, Against Gun Violence, uh, um, that, uh, that you've been an outspoken advocate uh, about uh, inclusion and uh, combating and eradicating anti-Semitism and other forms of racism. So I'm wondering, uh, I, I guess it's kind of a two-part question. You know, the first is, um, you talked about being thoughtful about the risks that you take in order to do what is right uh, and being, you know, uh, taking taking the precautions that you need to take. And, and, and so, but I'm, I'm wondering actually about a more fundamental question, which is, which is, uh, how do you how do you know what's right and what's wrong? Right? How do you determine uh, how do you determine that the cause that you want to fight for is is just and good and and worth whatever risks are going to come in combating it? Whether those risks are you know, am I going to you know get a lower grade in in school for for you know walking out of my class today, or whether the risk is um, you know, I, I might catch a, a deadly, uh, you know, novel virus uh, by participating in, in this march. Um, first, you have to decide that, like, what you want to fight for is is worth it, right? So, so how do you? Um, what fuels your activism? What what uh, what what makes you determine that that those causes are worth it? I think being Jewish and being surrounded by so many passionate Jewish leaders like you and Cantor Rosenblatt and the Temple Bethel congregation has really inspired me to never let anything, never wait for change to happen. Um, the Hillel quote, if not me, then who? Um, I feel this incredible duty to make sure that, that the causes that I care about are being addressed um, because as a young person, I cannot vote and I can't vote in a presidential election for another five years, um, but I'm impacted by nearly every one of the policies that is made by the voting population. Um, so I may not be able to vote, so I have to take to the streets or take to writing or speaking out um, to make sure that my voice is heard. And to your question about how to know what's right, I really think the concept of time has to do with it. Um, I always have to balance the short-term and the long-term benefits. So as you were saying in my activism about combating the climate crisis, I have to say I, I can go to this strike in DC and help make sure that there is a livable future for myself and my kids and grandchildren and I will have to miss a history test. I will have to miss a math test. I got a letter from my school saying I'm chronically absent um, for the year of 2020. Um, so I have missed a lot of school, but I find that it is very worth it for the long-term impacts um, of slowing global warming and of helping to make sure that the Jewish people have environments that are safe and inclusive and to help make sure that when I am at school I can focus on learning and not worrying about which bathroom I would run into if I heard that dreaded announcement over the PA system. Um, so these are there's so many issues that really impact my life and the lives of 
the other 2000 students in my high school's building and throughout the Jewish youth groups that I'm involved in and really the entire world that so that I know that I have a duty and an obligation to make sure that these issues are heard for so many generations. So I, I just have to tell you uh, a, you know, uh, something that made me chuckle as, uh, as, as you were sharing that really deep answer, but uh, I, I've uh, taken to studying Pirkei Avot with my, uh, with, with Lila, my eldest daughter, uh, who's going to be eight uh, in, uh, in August. Uh, and we got last week to the, uh, the quote from Hillel that you uh, referenced, um, right? If I am, uh, uh, if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? Uh, if I'm for myself alone, then what am I? And if not now, when? Uh, and, uh, and so we got to that first line, you know, uh, if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? And I love it. You know, seven-year-old says, uh, well, I don't know, like you're for you know, looking at me, like you're for me, Ima's for me, you know, if I, if, 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 you know, like I can't always take care of myself. Uh, and so I'm actually glad that I, I don't think Hillel's right, that like we do have people that, that are looking out for us. Um, and, uh, and so that actually, you know, I think speaks to what you're saying is that some of us, you know, are very fortunate to have people in our lives who, who are for us, who do look out for us. And the question is, can we be that for other people, right? Can we, can we be for other people? And that's gets to the second line of that passage, right? If I'm, if I am only for myself, then what am I, right? That, that we, uh, that, that we get our identity, that we, uh, that we become the people that we're created to be, not only because of how we take care of ourselves uh, and like how we form our own identity, but in some ways our identity is shaped by what we do on behalf of other people. Right? We're known through our actions. We're known for how we uh, stand up for and stand with other people. And that final line, right, if not now, when, uh, which, you, which you talked about, re reminded me of this uh, quote uh, from uh, Martin Luther King uh, that he uh, uh, gave at Riverside Church in New York in, in 1967. He said, we are now faced with the fact that tomorrow is today. We are confronted with the fierce urgency of now. In this unfolding conundrum of life and history, there is such a thing as being too late. Procrastination is still the thief of time. Life often leaves us standing bare, naked and dejected with a lost opportunity. The tide in the affairs of men does not remain all at the flood, it ebbs. We may cry out desperately for time to pause in her passage, but time is deaf to every plea and rushes on. Over the bleached bones and jumbled residue of numerous civilizations, are written the pathetic words, too late. So that struck me as, uh, as, as you were sharing what you were sharing that, uh, that um, and I think that that, you know, uh, reflects on what you were offering, especially about the, about the anti-racism protests that we're seeing, that, um, that, that there's a, a sense among people of the, of the fierce urgency of now. Is that something that, that motivates you? Like, how do you re react to that King teaching? I really do find that quote very motivating and inspiring. I think if you look at the protests right now, the majority of the people there are 
18, 22, 25. Um, and it is my generation and my brother's generation, like young people who are really making the, our voices heard because I think we do feel this sense of urgency that, I mean, God willing, I'm going to be alive in, if I lived to 97, it would be 2100. Um, and all of these policies and issues in our society really do impact me and my peers. And I cannot envision myself living in a society 10 years from now or 80 years from now that still endures the, the trauma of racism and anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, homophobia, and hatred in so many forms. I don't want to be a part of a generation that continues those systems for any for any more years. I don't want to be living in that world and I don't want my friends of color to be living in that world and my Muslim friends and my friends who are part of the LGBTQ community. I think all of these issues are so pressing for so many of us and nobody should have to live in a world where they're, they are hated, hated for the color of their skin or the people that they love or the opinions that they hold. Hmm. So you, you, you've given a really um, powerful testimony um, to you know, the, the, the promised land that you want to see, right? To use the terminology of the, of the Torah portion this morning. Um, and I'm wondering how you relate to the, uh, the, the piece of the story that, the, you know, the consequence for the sin of the spies and for the uh, population that was um, deterred from entering the promised land because of the report of the spies. Um, the consequence is that that uh, older generation will not be allowed to enter the promised land, will have to die out in the wilderness, and only their children will be able to enter the promised land. Although the children have to suffer for their parents' uh, transgressions too, they have to wander the, the desert for 40 years before they're able to enter the promised land. Um, as, a, as a youth activist, right, as somebody who, who uh, is involved uh, and mindful of what's going on in the world, is impacted by what goes on in the world, but, but can't... Uh, uh, can't formally vote to change it. Um, how do you relate to that aspect of the story? The the, the consequence, the uh, opportunity of uh, of this younger generation being the ones to enter the land. Um, their uh, their their the ways in which their parents' um, actions uh, impact them. Uh, how do you relate to all of that? I think that sentiment really has power during these Black Lives Matter protests because the previous generations had been fighting the anti-racism anti fight for 400 years. Um, the Rodney King riots and the riots at Ferguson, these issues and these sentiments um, about racism and hatred are not new to this world. Um, but I find it interesting in what you said that the younger generation still has to pay 
for the transgression of the older generation. I think in this fight against racism, that is still sadly so true that the there's so much hatred and racism that needs to be eradicated from this society. And it is now really on the shoulders of young people to ensure that that change does happen. Um, but they, it's still so important for, for the older generations to continue the fight and join with the young people for change. Um, and with the Parsha and climate change, I think there's also a great connection because it is many, the generations before me have been harming this planet and destroying the earth and creating an unstable future for me. And when I was born in 2003, um, I know it's crazy. <laughs> when I was born in 2003, I had no there. We'll hang that, let that hang in the atmosphere <laughs> for people to, to wrap their heads around. <laughs> Um, like when I was born, I had no say in the world that I came into, and I can't change the, the terrible systems and policies that have created a future where so many coastal cities may not exist, and hurricanes and famine and floods are going to destroy so many cities and societies. So I know that I... I can't undo any of that, though sometimes I wish I could. Um, so all I can do is march into the promised land, into the world that I am blessed to be a part of and make sure that I do my part to make sure that the people who follow me also have a chance to have a beautiful and safe future. So one of the one of the um one of the implications from the report that the spies give um is you know that their conclusion is that the land is unconquerable do you believe that there are any problems in our city state country world that are unsolvable that they're going to be with us forever or is every or is every challenge uh um can every challenge be addressed, can be fixed uh, with, you know, with the people who are persistent and, and resilient and, um, and, and uh, hopeful and, uh, um, and courageous? I would love to believe that every challenge and every form of hatred in our society could be disseminated, to, could disappear. Um, I wish that was the world that we live in. But I do think that there are so many forms of hatred that are ingrained in our society. So even if a white person doesn't actively contribute outwardly to systems of racism, they still likely benefit from um, previous creations like redlining and neighborhood covenants and segregation and Jim Crow and all of those systems that 
they've never contributed to but still benefit from. So I think recognizing privilege is the first step to to lighten the burden of that of racism in the world. And I think what makes the struggle about the struggle of destroying so many forms of race of hatred really difficult is that it's ingrained in so many facets of our society and it's less empirical than say um it's less empirical than other issues in our society and each of us has such a duty to take small steps like educating ourselves and having difficult conversations and going to protest if you're able to and donating money and signing petitions but it is difficult to say whether watch it like whether having one conversation or watching one documentary is now undoing all of racism in the world because it's not no matter how many documentaries i watch racism will still be perpetuated across the world um, so i think as this parsha states it's not it's important not to get disheartened by that by the greatness of the challenge before us and even if we can't climb the entire mountain and and undo racist and hateful systems it's still on every one of us to do our part to make sure that racism and hatred and anti-semitism are no longer parts of our society you know what you what you just offered there reminded me of um a, a teaching from Abraham Joshua Heschel, uh, in his last television interview, uh, he was asked um, what message he had for young people. Uh, and he said, um, be sure that every little deed counts, that every word has power, and that we do everyone our share to redeem the world in spite of all the absurdities and all the frustrations and all the disappointment. You know, and so there's a way in which um, I think that, uh, that, that we feel, you know, unless we, you know, unless we conquer the promised land, right, unless we, you know, uh, topple every giant, um, we haven't accomplished anything. Uh, but what Heschel says there is, no, it's, it's not the case that unless you have done everything, you haven't done anything. Um, that, uh, that, that every single thing we do, and I, I guess I would add to that, like everything we don't do also, right, everything we say and all the silence that we have, uh, makes a contribution for, for good or ill, and we need to be mindful of every single thing we do or and also every in, inaction that, that we also take. Um, so I, I guess I have two questions for you. Um, one, what do you think about that Heschel teaching? And two, um, what message do you have for your parents' and grandparents' generation? What message do you have for older people? And I recognize that for you, older people is like anybody over the age of 18, but, you know. <laughs> I really resonate with Heschel's quote that there is so much power in all of the things we do and choose not to do or say. Um, 
I think that can be very poignant with the fight against climate change because so many people say, if I, like, if I, if I take the bus instead of a car or if I choose to recycle or if I don't eat meat or if I don't buy new clothing, I'm not gonna end the climate crisis, right? If I put my milk carton in recycling, like it's not gonna save Bangladesh and Sri Lanka. Um, but I think there is that power in many people contributing to those beneficial systems, um, just like it is with voting. If everybody said my vote doesn't count or my vote doesn't matter, then we would have no democracy. Um, so I think it's important not to get disillusioned by the fact that we're not saving the entire world with every action, but to recognize that everything we do has a ripple effect. If I am sitting in a classroom or a, a living room with my friends and one of them makes a racist comment and I choose to be that person who doesn't laugh it off, who doesn't turn aside and who says that is not okay, here's why and you need to change your behavior. I might isolate myself from that group of friends. I should also ask myself why those people were my friends. Um, I might isolate myself from that group of friends, but I'll also show that entire group that we should not accept these systems of racism and hatred. And hopefully they will go forth and, and speak up when people make jokes or hateful comments. Um, so even if, if my one, if my one comment didn't end racism, it's still contributing to that system. And my message for my, the generations before me is to, oh, I have so many, <laughs> to, to recognize to recognize their role in the systems that still harm our society today and to not um, like shake that off their shoulders. Um, it's important for them to take credit for the harm they have caused to the world and then join with my generation in rising up and speaking out. And if, if, Older generations are unable to go to protests, whether for health or for safety. There's still so many ways they can make a difference by donating and signing petitions and educating themselves. And I, I think it's important for young people to know that, that they're not alone, that we're not alone in this fight and that, that there are, as you said, um, people among us who do support us and who do want to see the success of my generation. Um, and it's important to build those relationships. And I'm very grateful that I have so many strong adults in my life who have given me constant support and love that has informed my ability to speak out and to make sure my voice is heard. So uh, let me ask you one final question before we uh, 
uh, before we close this part of our service. Uh, one of the themes that comes up in the Torah portion um, is, uh, is, is the role of uh, faith in the actions we take or the actions that we uh, refrain from taking, right? Uh, Caleb speaks out against the other um, against the other spies and says, you know, no, like uh, God has told us that we're going, that we're supposed to inherit this land. Um, and so I believe that if we go in there and, uh, and, and, and put our effort in that we'll be able to accomplish it. I'm wondering for you, uh, what, if anything, is the role of faith in, um, in, you can go as general as your life, but we've been talking about your um, your, your activism and your engagement um, with, um, with, with our society. What's, what role does faith play for you? And what role should it play for us? I would first say that I'm still exploring and developing all of my thoughts and feelings on faith and God. Good. And <laughs> as Ho I hope I do for this. Hopefully, hopefully you'll never stop. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, I... I don't allow faith to take, take over, to take the place of action. If there is racism or hatred in our society or climate change or gun violence, I say I have a personal duty to do something about this. I am not somebody to sit back and say, God will take care of it. I believe good things will come. Um, I don't think good things will come until we take action. Um, and to quote the, to quote Menachem Creditor's song of Olam Chesed, um, I, that, that really is how I view faith in my life. Uh, if you think about the way he wrote the English, it says, if we build this world from love, then God will build the world from love. It's not saying first God will build the world and then we will build the world. So it's really that acknowledgement that we have been put into a world that is broken and that is not safe for everybody and that is not just for everybody. But if we take the actions first to make sure that we build a more just and loving and inclusive future, then God will join us in that call. That's so, that's so wonderful. And uh, it reminds me of one of my favorite stories from the Talmud. The story is of uh, Rabbi Joshua Ben Levi, uh, who uh, uh, asks Elijah the prophet um, to tell him uh, when the Messiah is going to come. And Elijah says, go and ask the Messiah yourself. So there's other aspects of the story that I think are really powerful. But anyway, the long story short is Joshua Ben Lady goes to the gates of Rome, which is where the Messiah, where Elijah says the Messiah is hanging out. And he asks him, you know, so when is the Messiah going to come? And the Messiah says, today. And Joshua Ben Lady is, you know, understandably very excited about that. You know, gets back in his boat, goes back to the land of Israel. Uh, today turns into tomorrow, which turns into the day after tomorrow. The Messiah spells and comes, goes back to Elijah and says, uh, the Messiah lied to me. And Elijah says, oh, and, and Joshua Ben Levi says, yeah, he said he was coming today, but today came and went and the Messiah still hasn't come. And Elijah says to him, no, you misunderstood what he said. He quotes a verse from the Psalms. He says, Hayom im that the Messiah will come today um, if you 
uh, follow uh, God's voice, right? In other words, if you, when you take the actions that we need to take to make the world, uh, uh, to redeem the world, to, uh, to, to repair the world, to perfect the world, right? Then we'll be able to merit the messianic era. We, we won't really need a Messiah to come anymore because that era will already be here. Um, so I think that that's so powerful. And it, and it reminds me one final story. There's this uh, uh, story that's told of a young woman who uh, goes to some place in the global South and sees the extraordinary crushing poverty that, uh, that exists in some places in the global South and breaks down one evening in her, uh, in her uh, room, her hostel, whatever at night and prays to God and says, you know, God, um, this is terrible. Why don't you fix this? Why don't you send somebody to fix this? And a voice comes out uh, of the heavens and says, I did send someone. I sent you. Uh, and, uh, and, and so uh, I think that you've uh, offered us that spirit today of um, being the person uh, who is called not just you, but each of us um, being the people who are, who are called to engage in the work, um, however much of the work we're able to engage in, uh, act large and small, um, that we have it within our power uh, to build this world from love, um, and that we owe it to our children and the generations that follow um, to, to do it now, that there's a fierce urgency of now, if not now, then when, uh, and uh, that we owe it to our children, and uh, we also uh, can uh, show our children and their generations, uh, the generations that follow uh, from our example, uh, and also empower them um, to be part of, uh, of the solutions for our benefit um, and for the benefit of everybody who comes after us. Um, so we're, we're so grateful for your, your presence, your wisdom well beyond your years, um, your passion, your thoughtfulness, your energy, um, your presence and your spirit. So thank you, Claudia, so much for all that you do and for being with us this morning. Thank you for having me, Rabbi. This has been Socially Distant, Spiritually Close with Rabbi Michael Knopf. I hope that this episode has helped you find a little faith and hope, enrichment and uplift during this complex and challenging time. If you haven't already, please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. That way, you won't miss an episode. Please also rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice so that others will have an easier time finding us and joining in the conversation. Socially Distant, Spiritually Close is recorded during virtual gatherings of my congregation, Temple Bethel in Richmond, Virginia. Socially Distant, Spiritually Close is produced by Dr. Gillian Frank. Our theme music is composed and produced by Stephen Frost. Our cover art was designed by Judith Russian, using a photograph by Miriam Aniel. I have been your host, Rabbi Michael Knopf. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other.